You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking Rates and Lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. This is Rico Muhammad coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. And tonight we have our very special guest, transportation attorney extraordinaire, Mr. Henry Seaton, will be joining us tonight to answer any and all of your transportation legal questions. If you have any questions regarding such things as tunnel fees, rejected loads, detention, contracts, now is the excellent opportunity for you to get a chance to get on and talk to someone that knows the legal ramifications and the legal statutes that surround those type of uh, situations. So if you want to get in and ask your question directly to Mr. Seaton, go ahead and press the number one that will put you in the queue, and we will be able to screen your call and get you up live so that you can ask your question directly and get direct information from a transportation attorney, not uh, lunch counter truck information, but get some real valid transportation attorney information from Mr. Henry Seaton himself. He's on the line. And he will be joining us here in just a second. But we will start out tonight's Freight and Lanes podcast as we normally do. And we'll try and run through this really quickly because we don't want to cut into any time with Mr. Seaton. Whenever he comes on, he's a wealth of knowledge. And we love to uh, pick his brain and get some information that will help us better our business. So uh, to this week on the USDA Fruit and Vegetable Truck Rate Report, we don't have any markets that are reporting any shortages. We have a couple of markets that are reporting slight shortages. Those counties are Idaho, Merrill County, Oregon, County, Maine, Michigan, New York, and Columbia Basin, Washington. Just wanted to breeze through that real quickly on the fruit and vegetable truck rate report. Go to Google and Google fruit and vegetable truck rate report. There's a lot more information in that report that we do not cover uh, we tried to get into it a little bit last week, but we don't cover it in depth here on this podcast, but you are able to go and get that report for yourself. You can glean whatever information you can from that. It's a wealth of knowledge to be had in there. If you're going to start looking into pulling any type of produce or anything, I highly recommend that you check that report out. Moving really quickly right on into this week's DAT Trend Lines report. Uh, for this week, we are looking at March 8th through the 14th. And freight availability added 4.2% last week. And capacity increased 7.6%. And the load-to-truck ratio declined for vans and reefers, and their average rates were unchanged. Flatbed ratios increased, so did the rates. So let's get into each one of those particular segments, and we'll start out with the U.S. van demand and capacity numbers for the week of the 8th through the 14th. For dry van, dry van freight availability increased 2.5% last week, and truckload capacity added 7.4%. It's usually moving in opposite directions. The load-to-truck ratio declined 4.6% from 3.7 to 3.5 loads per truck, despite the increased load volume. February capacity added 0.5%. The load-to-truck ratio averaged 26 for vans in February, a 6.6 decline compared to January. Load availability slipped 6.1% and capacity added 0.5% month over month compared to a typical demand in February of 2014. Last month's ratio 
was off by 52%. Moving on to U.S. VAN rate information. The VAN rates were unchanged at $1.94 per mile last week. A national average as outbound rates declined in Buffalo, but rose in Los Angeles and Dallas. February rates were down year over year. The monthly average van rate slipped six cents compared to January due partially to a decline in the fuel surcharge. Compared to February of 2014, the total rate was down 10 cents from $1.98 to $1.88 per mile, including the fuel. Quickly um, checking in across the country, we start out in the Northeast Corridor. The average fan rate in the Northeast Corridor for drive-ins was $1.82. The average drive-in rate in the Mid-Atlantic and the uh, Southeast region was $2 per mile. And for drive-ins, the high-water mark was coming out of the Midwest, out of Chicago, at $2.16 per mile on average. And the Central region, uh, Southwest Central region, shows $1.80 per mile on average. And coming out on the West Coast out of Los Angeles shows a $1.99 per mile average. Moving on quickly, the U.S. flatbed demand. Flatbed load availability rose 12% last week and capacity added 53%. Two metrics typically move in opposite directions. The load-to-truck ratio increased 6.3% from 13.9 to 14.8 loads per truck. Flatbed demand dips 3.7%, low volume dip 3.7 for flatbeds in February compared to January, and capacity increased 3.6%, yielding a 7% decline in the load-to-truck ratio month over month. The ratio slid 52% compared to February of 2014, when extreme weather led to a typical demand for all equipment types last year. And moving on to the U.S., flatbed rate information from March 8th through the 14th. National average flatbed rates recouped three cents last week, rising to $2.15 per mile as the national average. There was no change in the fuel surcharge compared to the previous week. The national average rate for flatbeds again fell eight cents. That's a 3.1% change in February to $2.13 per mile compared to February of 2014. Flatbed rate slipped seven cents. That was a 3.2% change per mile, mostly due to declining fuel surcharges. Quickly checking in across the country, starting out in the Northeast Corridor, the national average for flatbeds, the target city is Harrisburg, shows an average of $3.65 per mile for flatbeds, which is the high water mark. The um, southeast region coming out of the Atlanta area showing an average of $2.41 per mile. Midwest, Rock Island is the target city showing an average of $2.57 per mile. Houston, Texas represents the central and southwestern part of the United States showing an average of $2.25 per mile in that region. And Phoenix, Arizona is the west coast representative showing an average of $1.69 per mile coming out of the west the West Coast Division of the of the uh, of the United States. Moving quickly over into the U.S. reefer demand for March eighth through the fourteenth, demand for reefers dipped three percent last week, and capacity increased eleven percent. The load to truck ratio declined twelve percent. As a result, dropping 
from 11 back to 9.6 loads per truck. Reefer load availability declined 14% and capacity added 1.7% in February compared to January. The resulting load to truck ratio dipped 15% from 9.1 to 7.7. Compared to the extreme weather driven demand of February 2014, the ratio declined 51%. Moving on and wrapping this report up, we're going to jump into the uh, reefer rates and the national reefer rates were stable. The national average of reefers was unchanged from last week. Shows a national average of $2.16 per mile for reefers. Reefer rates dropped 12 cents in February compared to the January national average and lost 8 cents compared to 2014. So quickly, around the country, Elizabeth, New Jersey, at the East Coast representative up in the Northeast, showing an average of $2.21 per mile. Coming out of Lakeland, Florida, showing a $1.66 per mile average. Green Bay sets the high water mark coming out of the Midwest, showing a $3.05 per mile average. McAllen, Texas is going to be the South Central representative, showing a $2.04 per mile average. And coming out of Fresno for reefers, showing an average rate of $1.93 per mile coming out of the West Coast in Fresno. And that pretty much wraps up um, the... Uh, oh, okay. Thank you for I calling apologize. That, pretty much, that pretty much wraps up the, uh, the number for the rates. And with no further ado, let's see if we can grab Mr. Seaton uh, and grab Mr. You, you and bring him up on board. Is, yeah, you can and should Hello? report the guy to all the credit services for what he did so that... Uh, Everybody else is forewarned. Hi, how you doing, Mr. Seaton? I'm doing fine. I've had a couple of questions. I didn't know whether we were live or not. No, we we, we had you in the, we had you in the queue room. So I, I, I apologize. I've had you in the queue room with my and, and I probably should okay. put you on put you on hold. <laughs> okay. So, so you've been answering questions in the background all along, huh? Yeah, I had a couple. Okay, good deal, good deal. Well, we, we'll get those callers, we'll get them back up, and we'll get them, uh, get them in here in just a second. Um, wanted to just give you check in real quickly with you and introduce everybody to you. Um, Mr. Seaton is, like I say, one of the most the leading transportation attorneys. If you have any questions, anything tonight, go ahead and press number one. We can get you up in the queue. Um, also, wanted to give Mr. Seaton a chance. Uh, Hank, you want to tell everybody your website and give them your information on contact information if you like. Sure, sure. Our website is pretty simple. It's transportationlaw.net. If you uh, have time and like to play around the Internet, you can see that there are uh, over, I guess, 200 articles that I've written uh, over the past few years on a wide range of topics. Uh, it's fairly well indexed. Uh, it's, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. If you'd like to uh, look around, maybe you and got a question, maybe it'll be answered. Uh, and um, I guess that's good enough. It'll give you my bio and uh, our firm and what we do. It's pretty uh, uh, wide-based in terms of representing uh, motor carriers, large and small, and kinds of issues have been asked so far tonight, collection issues, truck order not used, just general transportation law. Uh, I've been doing it for 40 years, so I remember the good old days and the bad times as well. I guess that's enough of an intro, uh, Rico. Uh, we can go to questions if you want to. 
All right, yeah, we got a gentleman that's got his hand raised right now, um, calling in from. Well, I guess my it looks like my daughter's trying to get ready to um, to, to screen that call, but I'm a I'm a buffer out of there and see if we can bring him up. We don't have the same caller calling in from the Chicago Five area. Cool. A little call. Okay, we'll put him back on hold. Not sure he had had a, quite a bit of background noise. We'll put him back on hold and see if uh see if we can get him screened. See if we can get him back to the phone. Um, had a couple of questions off of Facebook, Mister Seaton, that um that came that came up. Um, got one coming in that says, "What options does a carrier have after loaded?" The broker changes the delivery date and time and refuses to pay the carrier's detention and end or layover rates. Am I looking for any That may be, that may be the same gentleman return? I just got through talking to. And the answer uh, before we went live is, unless you negotiate as part of the load confirmation sheet, uh, truck ordered and not used, you'll have a hard time uh, getting paid. Clearly, if he changes the, uh, the pickup time, uh, and other terms and conditions, you can tell them to suck eggs and not do business with him. You're under no uh, uh, obligation to accept the load uh, if he didn't fulfill his his bit. But uh, uh, it, it's important that you incorporate your accessorial somehow into uh, uh, the uh, uh, the contract with the broker at time of pickup uh, or at time of booking or. You're going to play hell getting him to be a nice guy and pay you. Now, some of the reputable people uh, will uh, will certainly do it. They feel some level of obligation, and they would want to keep their carrier clientele around, but you don't have a legal right to, to insert on it. Other than, of course, okay. you could say, well, the guy's in breach of his contract. He promised me a load, and uh, he should have foreseen the damages. But litigating that's going to be... Uh, uh, problematic. Most courts are going to say if you don't have it in writing, uh, you, you don't have, uh, aren't entitled to it. Okay, let me let me give you a follow up to this because there has been some, and I know I understand that's why we have you on here because you are an attorney. But we have some people that are teaching, um, that are teaching some things as far as with, with some of the different uh, home based brokering programs and things like that. And they they have I've heard them give advice that says, "Well, just invoice them. Just go ahead and invoice." Them. And I, I know for a fact that that doesn't necessarily work out too well for you. But if you want to kind of maybe uh, debunk some of that or, or or give us some clarity on that, that would be great as well. Well, I mean, Rico, I could invoice you for this hour. We didn't agree you were going to pay me anything, and I I wouldn't expect you to send me a big fat check. I mean, certainly, certainly, you could, uh, it, it is a technique, and I have seen it done for people to invoice the broker for a truck order not used, and uh, you know you can make a cogent case that you know uh, with a note that says uh, I did hit the truck 150 miles out of route at. Uh, uh, you know, at a dollar fifty a mile, you owe me, uh, uh, you know, two hundred and twenty-five bucks. Uh, clearly, if you're going to invoice somebody, you need to come up with some uh, uh, reasonable basis for what your damages are. And uh, you know, I'm not against trying. I'm just saying 
that as a legal matter, I don't think you've got a right to enforce anything. So you could not file that just just for clear that. And I think we've kind of we've covered this a little bit before in some previous podcasts, but we've got some. Yes. Uh, we're constantly trying let me to get, let, me give, let me give you a better <laughs> let me give you a better example. Uh, I uh, uh, am asked for a surety to uh, monitor uh, uh, bro- their broker bonds, and if you were to file a bond claim on a broker or a truck ordered and not used, and uh, and a set amount and sent to me, here's the invoice. Uh, he canceled the load. My letter back to you was, show me that you agreed to an accessorial charge of truck order not use. Most likely, if the broker called me in and said I never agreed to it, I would end up telling the uh, the carrier, I can't in good faith pay the claim. Uh, if you get a judgment against the guy, uh, for whatever reason, we'll certainly honor it. So I'm I'm just saying based upon you know, what would be my role as an arbiter in that situation if you made a bond claim against him, unless you could prove uh, that it was incorporated into the contract of carriage, uh, uh, the bond claim wouldn't be paid. And that's about, you know, that's about as far as I can go telling you other than you can, uh, you can sue. Um, and, I, you know, I think, I think you'll have a hard time, you have a hard time prevailing. That's why, yes, you know, I told people that have been on the list before, and I told the, the guy who, who was on, yes, I understand that, you know, brokers don't want to agree to any kind of accessorial charges, but uh, hopefully uh, we'll be more successful in getting accessorials built into the contract on the front end. Uh, you know, this is just the front end of the situation where a, a poor carrier... Uh, has got a delivery appointment on Friday afternoon at three o'clock and get and uh, the uh, the consignee's closed and nobody wants to pay uh, attention. There's no reference of it in the contract. Right, and we got a couple more callers with some questions. Got the hands raised, so we're gonna try and go directly to them. Caller calling in from the two five four area code. You're on live with Hank and Rico. How can we help? Yeah, um, what's the purpose of a blind bill of lading? Uh, I've been on um, a couple runs last uh, last year, six, and um, they give me a blind bill of lading. And is is it legal? Uh, it is. It is legal when. It most often happens, I see it in what's called freight diverting. And what is going on is the person who is hiring you or hiring the broker does not want the company to know from whom the product came. Let's assume, uh, let's assume for the sake of argument that it's uh, perfectly good canned goods but that it's being sold uh, uh, by what we call a freight diverter. And there are situations in which uh, maybe a large chain grocery house will buy uh, more canned goods than they can consume because they get a volume discount. Now they turn around and want to sell it to uh, 
uh, uh, somebody else and they uh, want to hide the origin. Well, you know, the carrier is kind of being asked to be complicit in that. Uh, there's nothing illegal about it. It does, in fact, occur. But uh, mm -hmm. I was a professional witness in a case for a grocery store, a, gro a wholesale grocery house, that woke up one day and found out that its major customer was diverting the freight and that the motor carrier that they were hiring was in bed with the diverter. And mm -hmm. the lawsuit was against the motor carrier. Uh, and, you know, my opinion was that it was unethical because there is a thing called the truth in billing requirements. Mm -hmm. if, you're hired, if you're hired by some third party to deliver it and the third party tells you to... Uh, uh, execute another bill of lading, you're probably not in violation of anything. But uh, mm -hmm. if you are party of perpetrating a fraud on the guy who hires you because somebody else wants you to deliver it to a different location, then I'd be very reluctant to do it. This whole issue of freight diverting is kind of a uh, kind of a cheesy idea. Uh, the manufacturers hate it. Uh, because uh, they want to be able to give their uh, volume discounts to, to people who are actually going to use the product, not people who are going to resell it. Okay. Hopefully that let's explanation say, makes some sense. It, it does now. Uh, let's, let's suppose that I'm on the, uh, the East Coast, and the, 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 the first receiver on my bill of lading is in the South, but... It ends up in the West Coast. If I get caught with a bill of lading going the wrong direction by the cops, what happens then? You know, you understand my question? Sure, I do. You know, if I were you, I would, to protect myself, want on the truck some email or some some evidence that the shipment has been reconsigned, okay, because no. that's what's really happened. The shipper gave you a bill of lading that said it was going to Miami, but mm -hmm. actually somebody else reconsigned it to California. Right. And, you know, if the guy stops you and says, buddy, what are you doing going to Florida uh, in California? When this says you're going to Florida, you say this shipment was reconsigned my... Uh, here's my, my contract from whatever. But, you know, as a matter of fact, I haven't seen that in years. Uh, it used to be that uh, uh, the, the, when everybody had limited authority uh, and the ICC was concerned about enforcing uh, uh, economic regulation that happened, now, I think they're really just concerned with the fact that you've got license and insurance to handle it, and certainly that you're not stealing the load. Mm -hmm, uh, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen, uh, I, haven't, I haven't had a call uh, ever about uh, uh, somebody being stopped on the fact that the freight had been diverted. Okay. Uh, usually what happens is, you know, you're asked to make out a delivery receipt that uh, that shows something else, and I guess if you got your you know your proposed delivery receipt that shows it's consigned to uh, Sacramento, that ought to be sufficient. Mm -hmm. 
LPL carriers, of course, uh, frequently, uh, you know, will get a master bill of lading that shows that the truckload's consigned to Chicago, and then their little LTL bills that, uh, you know, may actually be what they're out on the road with, with the ship being delivered to some point beyond. So it's not untypical for the original bill of lading not being the document that the shipment's delivered on. The only okay. the only argument that I know, and that's what came up in this case, is this truth in billing. Uh, if you're going to bill a guy for uh, services provided, uh, you need to accurately tell him where the shipment went. Uh, particularly if he was paying you to take it there, you need to take it there, and you don't need to be monkeying around with giving him the false impression that the load went to some place it didn't. Mm-hmm. He's paying okay. your bill. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Let's see here. We'll put him back on hold so he can stay stay on and listen. And let's try the caller again from the 605 area code to see if we can get him. Caller from the 605, you're on live with Rico and Hank. What's your question? How can we help? Hello, caller. Uh, is this me? That's you. Yes, sir, it is. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't even push the button, but I'm okay, Rico. Joe Cox, how are you? I'm well, Joe. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. My question is regarding last week's uh, call, not on your show, but on another one, where somebody was bringing up that uh, if you had an issue, you could, since you basically own the freight on the trailer, you could sell that freight, but not at a profit, but for the, for the cargo. Well, my question is, if you have $100,000 worth of TVs on that and you sell it for the freight rate of $3,000, who's going to get the bill for the $100,000 worth of TVs? I'll jump in on that one. Uh, you, have got, you have got a lien on shipments in your possession for payment of the freight charges of that ship. So, yes, in sir. other words, if you get... If, if you get a, a shipment, and for whatever reason you now want uh, the uh, the load to be paid because you don't trust the, the broker, you can put that on COD and you can insist that you're paid. If you're not paid, you assert your lien and you have to give notice to the beneficial owner and the broker that you're going to sell it in accordance with the UCC unless they discharge your lien. And then when you do sell it, you've got to sell it under commercially reasonable uh, procedures, and you can deduct your freight charges on that load, but you sure in the heck can't sell $100,000 worth of TVs for 3000 bucks. Yeah, that's what I, I was thinking, gotta, too, I, but I, I thought it was some I, gotta, I mean, you've got, a, you've got an obligation uh, to right. mitigate damages and, and sell it for the maximum value. Now, there is distressed merchandise all the time, in which, uh, let's say, a consignor, consignee rejects a shipment and there's really nothing wrong with it, and you issue an on-hand notice that says, look, this is wrongfully rejected, I'm going to sell it for best advantage and deduct my freight charges, and I'll send the beneficial owner the rest, but I'm not going to pay his cargo claim. But that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you can go out and call your brother-in-law up and say, man, can I give you a hell of a deal 
on a hundred thousand dollars worth of TV. You send me three grand, and uh, we'll stick this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I don't know. I don't know what yeah. show you were on, but I, I may not call somebody out. But that that sounds like pretty pretty sloppy advice to me. Yeah, that's what yeah, I, I got another. Doing. I got with the new guy out here. He's be in trouble. Well, I got another caveat to, to add to that, Mister Seaton, because we we talked and, and you kind of addressed it a little earlier was about asserting your uh, asserting your um, uh, you know trying to get your rule circular in there for your accessorials and stuff like that. Yeah. And before on our previous podcast, we've always talked about always trying to you know um, get that rule circle and being able to read and, and the thing that you talk about in your book, which we need to plug mm-hmm. in as well, uh, protect protect the motor carrier's interest in contracts. Um, but you talk about the dirty dozen and that goes when you're dealing with broker loads, if you sign a lot of these broker agreements and stuff, how much of your rights you're signing away by those agreements. So you may not even have the authority to even usurp your lien. If I'm, if I'm, yeah, that's right. Most of those contracts, uh, waiver of liens is one of the typical provisions that are in shipper and broker contracts. Uh, I'll just tell you guys that are on the line. Uh, on, I guess it's Monday of next week, I'm making a, a, a presentation to a fairly good-sized shipper and broker group, and uh, uh, maybe you all need to pray for me. I may get stoned, because I am going to tell them that uh, there is a new day coming, that uh, uh, the FMCSA is uh, going to constrict the number of, of drivers on the road, and that, in my opinion, the shipping community is going to have to stop trying to cram down unreasonable service terms and conditions on carriers, and that, uh, you know, carriers are going to, because of the supply and demand, be able to assert their rights, and things like, we'll pay you in 60 days if we want to, you'll indemnify us even if we cause the damage, uh, you'll waive recourse to the consignor, so we don't have to pay you. Uh, all of these kinds of things that uh, uh, we have just typically accepted over the past few years uh, are going to change. And I, I know that they're changing for the larger carriers who can be choosing. And, uh, you know, I truly hope that uh, the silver lining to uh, the... FMCSA running more and more carriers out of the business is going to be those who can survive will not have to sign these uh, terrible uh, uh, agreements and will be able to uh, uh, level the playing field in negotiating these terms and conditions. And I really think we're just about at the tipping point on that. I think uh, uh, I think the shippers and brokers have pushed it about as far as they can and that uh, even a small carrier needs to uh, needs to pay better attention to the terms and conditions under which he's taking freight. So, Joe, did you have anything else, or was that was that it? No, that answered the question there, Rico and Hank. So, I appreciate it. Y'all have a good night. Sure. Oh, thank you, Joe. We'll put you back on hold. And, and Mitch Seaton, just just kind of like a we got a couple, we got a ton of callers and questions tonight. And I'm coming to you, followers, just be patient with me. But I just want to follow up really quickly just to, to, on that point that you just made. You know, um, and I've been kind of seeing this, have been listening to me, that no one forces us to do anything. And 
over the past years, we have given up so much ground. The motor carrier community has given up so much ground. And if things are starting to turn back, you know, all markets go through cycles, you know, where you got to, you know, in real estate, they use the term a buyer's market, a seller's market or whatever. And right now, I feel like things, the pendulum is swinging back to the side of the motor carrier, but we have to take it while that pendulum is swinging back in our direction. We are going to have to take advantage of that momentum and start standing our grounds on certain things. And that's really, I, I like to, you know, publicly thank you for coming on and answering these questions and taking these calls from, uh, you know, just us one and true, uh, one and two guy uh, truck operations so that we know where our legal footing and our legal ground is, is and we're not taking, um, you know, you help demystify a lot of the, the minutia that is out there and helps get everybody, you know, hopefully, you can you can take advice, whatever free advice, whatever is worth. You know what I mean. But but taking it from someone that's trained a trained attorney that does this for a living, I think um, I think that speaks for itself. So I just again like to publicly thank you for coming on and taking these questions and helping us out in this fashion. Sure. Um, we got Elizabeth coming in right now. She has a follow up question, so we're going to bring up Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. This Hi, is Rico. Rico. You're on live with uh, with Hank and yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Rico. I'm Seaton. Thank you for having me on tonight. Um, my question Thanks tonight for is a, a follow-up. Thank you. My question was kind of a follow-up to some of the things you were talking about earlier, Rico. And um, if I have um, expressly put my uh, detention rate in the rate confirmation upon, you know, when I sign it and send it back to the broker, um, and at that point, I guess I would accept that if he accepts that and loads my truck then the following day, that we're in agreement with that. Um, and at that point, then, once my truck's loaded and in route um, and there's an issue of detention is already arising, what kind of recourse do I have? Um, because I, I look at it as we've entered into a contract now. Um, but I had a situation just the other day where they absolutely refused. So what you're telling me is he sent you a contract, you yes. uh, you signed the contract, but you modified it by putting in yes. uh, the, the the detention and the other stuff. You sent it back to him. While he didn't countersign it as accepting it, he nonetheless loaded you. Yes. Okay, I think, I think that you've got a pretty good argument that he offered you a load. You... you uh, uh, you countered his offer by saying, I'll take it if you provide me uh, uh, with the truck order to not use an attention. That uh, is, he obviously received that. Uh, that then his act of tendering you the load is his acceptance of your counter offer. I think legally that's the way that goes. Now, he can absolutely right. refuse, but you know, you can make a claim on his bond. I can, okay. And and I, I, you know, I think you can make a claim on his bond. Uh, the bondman, the bondsman may say, "Well, he contested, and I'm not going to pay it unless you get a judgment." But at that point, uh, you know, it may very well be worth it. To uh, we had an earlier call; somebody had the same question, uh, and uh, their problem was, "Well, if I get a judgment, how can I collect it?" In your case, if you do have to take it to court, you can take it to small claims court. You can prevail and then go against the bond. Okay. So now, I think I, I, I think, might have. I think your contract is. I think you did modify the contract. Yes. I think his act of tender is uh, is acceptance. 
Okay. Now I think at this time I've I've kind of shut the door on that because after that then he sent me he he basically told me we're not going to pay that you have no recourse you have nothing and and this was over the weekend I I didn't um, look into it probably as as good as I could have during the week so I accepted another rate confirmation with a much lower rate than I would have wanted to uh, based on him offering me a little bit more at this point now I have to just accept that and move on is that correct or can yeah. the original contract if you if you, okay. if you basically if you basically uh, negotiate a settlement and then right. executed a, a a new contract agreeing to accept less, you just got bullied. Okay, very good. Well, I will keep that in mind for next time. I I will uh, stand my ground. Thank you. Okay. All right. And, 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 and uh, before I let you go, Elizabeth, I, I just wanted to let you know that. Now, Mr. Seaton, you remember the gentleman that we had on with us the last time you was on, Kenny? Elizabeth is, is his wife. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you both very yeah, so I, 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 Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Mr. Seaton, another thing that we were talking about, uh, this, I, I'm listening as you're talking and answering these questions and going back to the book that you wrote, uh, Protected Motor Carrier's Interest in Contracts. By the way, everybody, if you want a copy of that book, uh, please go to Mr. Seaton's uh, website, transportationlaw.net. Is that correct, Mr. Seaton? Yeah, that's right. And there's a, there's a place on there where you can order it. You can order the book, or you can order to download the um, the uh, yeah, book right got, online. Yeah, we've got we've got some hard copies of the uh, of, of the book left that we found. I think there may be thirty, but you can either get a download or or a copy of the book if uh, if you prefer. But just uh, uh, go to the website, and uh, my office will take care of it for you. And just following up on that point that you were talking about, about getting a judgment. Now, if you sign a broker contract, one of the provisions that I always see in a lot of these broker contracts as well is the Homer provision, provision what you call it. If you, if you decide to do any type of litigation or whatever, you basically have to do it on their home turf in their, in their, uh, in their home state. Uh, is, am I correct when I'm, I'm, I'm assuming when I read that, am I correct? And if you're going to try to go after a judgment on what that, that previous situation, would you have yeah, to do it? Yeah, that in can nullify your judgment. If you, let's assume that, uh, uh, on the situation that Elizabeth was asking, that, uh, uh, she had decided she could, uh, had a good cause of action. Certainly she would want to sue the guy in her home state. Uh, she could go sue, get the judgment then go uh, make a filing with the uh, uh, against the bond, the broker could come in and say, well, look at the contract. It says the judgment's not valid because it wasn't brought in Minnesota. And at that point, you might have uh, spent yourself some money and chased your tail, and the broker still said you don't have a valid uh, uh, judgment because the Homer provision said you had to sue this guy in Minnesota. So that's another right. example of where the Homer provision you're talking about uh, makes it just damn difficult for you to uh, uh, get your legal rights over uh, small claims matters. It allows uh, the shipper or the broker to take the uh, position, well, you know, possession's nine-tenths of the law and I've got your money. And the other right. tenth is right. to come to Michigan to litigate. And I, I, so, I kind of put up a 
past couple of weeks, there's a there's a funny little scene in, at, at the end of uh, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where they talk about you know the provision in there where, where, where little Charlie was expecting to get his lifetime supply of chocolate, and Willy Wonka pulled out the contract on him and, and went through the contract and would tell him that that you know you lose, you didn't read the contract that you signed, and and this is one of the things that we have to be mindful of as small business people dealing with brokers and signing these contracts, we got to be mindful of what it is that we're signing and not to sign away our rights, which is, you know, like I say, once again, we appreciate you for coming on and helping us kind of navigate through these, these muddy waters that we got out here. Going back to the phone lines, we got quite a few callers uh, and questions still here. Let's see. We're going to go to caller calling in from the area code 863. Uh, caller calling in from the 863. You're online with Rico and Hank. How can we help? Hello, caller. All right, we'll put him back on hold. We'll go to the next one. We've got Jason calling in that has a question. Let's go to Jason. Jason, you're on live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? How you doing, Rico? Mr. Hank, how you doing? Very fine. Well, um, I had a question about an uh, independent contractor. Um, I work for a company that I am an independent contractor. But this is not my truck. I don't pay for any, you know, any repairs or nothing like that. Is that a legal contract? Because I signed it, but it's illegal. Well, it probably uh, it probably would not pass muster with either the states or the feds. Uh, the reason for that is in the in the federal uh, re- regime in terms of withholding and federal. Uh, benefits, there is what's called a 20-point test to determine whether you're an employee or an independent contractor. Okay. A driver a driver who does not own uh, or have uh, uh, responsibility for a bona fide lease of equipment just can't meet that 20-point test. Uh, okay. most, under most state governments, uh, state laws, it's a uh, probably even more difficult. Some of them have the 20-point control test. Some have an ABC test, but and, uh, under which they'll even classify a guy who owns his own truck as an employee. But uh, it would be very difficult for me to see how a uh, trucking company could say, well, we did not pay workman's comp benefits on this driver. Or we didn't pay... Uh, unemployment compensation and all of the other taxes on him because we considered him to be a bona fide uh, independent contractor even though he uh, didn't lease us equipment. So, you know, I, I, I know that there are people, and I hear about them all the time, that have said, well, just because I pay you by the mile and not by the hour, you you can be an independent contractor, but... Uh, uh, I think that uh, federal and state law uh, would probably uh, run the other way if that was challenged. Okay, okay. And and I get paid by the percentage. Um, I get 20% of the uh, load. And uh, another question that I had about the load, um, I don't see how much the loads pay. All I get is a text message telling me how much the load pays, but I I. I talked to the broker, and um, I talked to yeah. Well, you brokers. see, here, here, yeah. Here, here's the thing: if you were leasing equipment to the carrier, 
then under the truth and leasing regulations, you would have a right to see what the load paid. Because a typical owner-operator who owns the equipment uh, gets the pass-through on the fuel surcharge and something like 70% of the gross revenue. And they have the right to see the rated freight bill. Now, you know, at, at this point, uh, uh, you know, if you're not happy, uh, you know, they're whistleblowing things. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I'm primarily a carrier rep, and it's not, uh, I'm not someone going around here trying to tell everybody who's unhappy with the deal they ought to go to the IRS and the state people and turn the guy in. But, you know, the deal you've got is pretty egregious. It's pretty and egregious that, 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 and, you know, from your point of view, let's face it, workman's comp is here in case you're injured on the job. Uh, and, you know, you can be just as injured on the job driving his truck uh, as an independent contractor as if you're working for him. So, I mean, there's certain social benefits that you're not getting. And the other thing is, you know, the the deal about being your own businessman and own your own truck is, hey, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, there's not a whole lot of entrepreneurship or chance to get ahead that you really got if you're just getting paid 20% of we know not what to drive a truck. And, okay. and uh, one know, more let thing me, let me, let me assure point. you, if, if you, just one more thing. You know, if you've got a halfway decent driving record there, you are a precious commodity. You don't have to submit to that kind of stuff. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. One more thing to throw on top of that, too, uh, that you need to be mindful of is that you're getting paid uh, 1099, so you're not getting taxes taken out on you. So you're going to get a one hell of a tax bill when you go file your taxes. And, uh, and the other thing on top of that, because you, you don't have anything to, to, to deduct. You're not paying for fuel. You're not paying for maintenance. Yeah. You're not paying for repairs. You don't have any. You're not getting. You're not getting Obamacare. You're not getting anything. So you know, at right. the end of the at the end of the year, uh, you know, unless you've been forced saving a huge amount of that, you've got to you've got to pay. Uh, you know, uh, under FICA and those kinds of things, as an employee, he pays half and half of it's deducted from you as an independent businessman. Uh, you know, you pay more than half. I think, you know, you may pay uh, like something like 6.5% as an employee uh, for uh, Social Security, but if you're self-employed, you pay more like 9.5%. So every way, every way come to Sunday, uh, you know, he's saving about a third of what he pays you in taxes. Well, yeah, he's, he passing on, he's, passing, he's passing his bill on. He's, yeah, he's passing his bill on to you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He's he's all right. passing he's passing all the social welfare burden onto you, and you're getting none of the benefits. All right. I sure appreciate it. Well, I'm sorry to tell right, you that, you. but uh, you know, I, I I and you know, for anybody else that's on here, you know, listen, I just have to take your questions as you see them, as people can probably tell. I don't pull any punches on them. Uh, you know, you you tell me the way it is and. That's what I'm responding to. If there are other aspects of the case I don't know, then I really can't comment on it. But what this caller just said uh, isn't to what I consider to be kosher. Okay. Yeah, and and I, I think that, you know, we appreciate the candor of it because, you know, sometimes 
that's what we need. We need to get the straight dope. <laughs> and uh, we got another caller. We man, they they lining up for tonight, Mister Seaton. Uh, we got Gavin okay, calling. Go. Gavin has a question. Gavin, yeah, you're on live. Thanks, uh, going, Hank. Call. thanks for taking my call, Rico. How you doing, Hank? Um, I'm going to pull the trigger on this thing. Uh, March uh, 30th of this month, I'm going to go ahead and jump out there on my own. I have uh, signed up the two low boys, and I've been calling brokers, uh, getting them to send out set-up packages. And I've been filling them out, reading over the contract, and saying, uh, is there anything else y'all would recommend me to do before I jump out there on my own? Uh, well, a couple of things. You probably do need to get the book because it does have the 13 things that you're going to be seeing in this contract. Now, realize that if you're jumping out here on your own, uh, people are going to look at you as the last one they want to hire because most brokers want to see that the carrier's been around for a couple of years. You're going to have a, you know, you're going to have a high docket number. You're not going to have any, any safety profile, uh, uh, it you know it, it's it's going to be tough. I would say that uh, if you're jumping out on your own, wherever it is you're based, if you can make a personal touch with somebody that will uh, uh, give you uh, your outbound freight or at least fifty percent of your of your business, so that you don't have to uh, just bounce like a ping pong ball all over the load boards doing business with people you don't know you'll have a whole lot better chance of surviving. Uh, you may be I, I, I interested. Gotta, gotta... Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Ms. Yeah. I, I, thought you, I thought you were finished. Go ahead. I'll let you finish. Well, I was just going to say, anybody who's just getting started might really look at something like the National Association of Small Trucking Companies and their new carrier survival uh, training, which will... Uh, you know, uh, help you with uh, look at your costs, look at the at the drug testing, look at the new carrier audit, all of the things that have got to come your way. So you kind of, uh, you know, in a couple of days uh, uh, are forewarned of uh, uh, what the what the government's going to do to you, what you can expect from shippers and brokers, what kind of books you have to keep. There's a there's a lot to it. Uh, yeah, because I, I was going to purchase I, the book from your website uh, probably tomorrow from whenever business hours. I was going to sure. purchase that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really tough. Uh, Rico, you can comment on this. But I think it's, I think it's really tough to just uh, uh, get all your loads off the load board and end up doing business with a different broker every day. I'm doing power just, only just, now, just, and I'm finna cut the power only and loop, you know, because they've been getting all my loads, and I've been pulling their trailer, so I already have my trailer, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of brokers have been asking me how long have I been in the business, but I've been driving trucks for 20 years, so, and uh, I have home authority for about seven months now doing power. Oh, okay, that's great. Yeah. Well, just, well just, and, and, and you know when you, when you mention when you mention when you mention the you know power only or with your own truck, uh, there are some brokers who have have dedicated dedicated lanes and who will use you on a continuous movement basis and those kinds of things, which can take some of the hassle out of it. Uh, they okay. look at you as an excess capacity uh, provider, and that might be the 
you know, the thing you want to look at, particularly if you find someone who uh, in their contract doesn't look like they're trying to really, uh, uh, really drag you out. You'll quickly, you'll quickly find people that want to work with you, and your good service should recommend you. Okay, thanks. And, uh, as right. and, and, and just yeah, and just to kind of uh, to kind of wrap it up, Hank kind of hit all the points that I was going to say. But one one thing just to kind of reiterate, I cannot stress enough: go and join NASTI, National Association of Small Trucking Companies. I, I already have these people they, they, I took they class, all right. so I'm so, already up on that. Right, and um. Uh, I want to grow my business. Have you grown your business, Rico? Because a lot of people say that's the worst thing I could ever do because I'm going to have way more headaches. Just stay one truck and one trailer. Well, I'll, I'll give you this recommendation, Gavin. Go and pick up a book by uh, Michael Gerber called uh, uh, The E-Myth, E-Myth Revisited. Go pick up that book, and, and he'll kind of, you know, listen to that if you're going to get it on audio book or whatever. Grab that book, and he kind of goes into uh, the entrepreneurial myth and, and talks about and breaks down. If you're getting into the into the business as far as growing your business, you, you can't grow your business in the truck. You got to get out of the truck in order to grow your business. So you need to be, you know, and and those are small things to a giant. You gotta, you know, you gotta come out of the truck and begin working on your business versus working in your business. The longer you stay working in your business, you are staying on the um, proverbial uh, hamster wheel. You're going to be running on that wheel. But if you ever want to grow your business, you got to get out from behind that truck. you got to get out there. you got to get out okay. here and uh, knock on some doors and meet some people. And and that's what that was the only other thing that I was going to add that Hank kind of talked about. You know, go around and, and, and I think it's a waste of time to, to call brokers. If you're on a low board and you post your truck, the broker's going to call you. I wouldn't waste any time calling the broker. Uh, I, I would spend my time, if I'm going to be calling anybody, I'll be calling and trying to solicit direct shippers and to try to move their freight. Uh, that that would be, if I had everything to do over, that would be where I would start. I would start trying to knock down and getting those direct contacts where, because um, like I say, once you post your truck on a load board, the broker's going to call you. So don't waste any time calling them. I, that's just my opinion. Oh, yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing is we've talked, we've talked about this before. Uh, I think if you want to grow your business, finding a niche, you know, finding right. finding a, a corridor, a particular service, uh, you know, a, a shipper who can recommend you, it just takes one. But I think, uh, you know, Omaha tonight and Cleveland tomorrow uh, is going to get you pretty doggone road weary wondering where the next load's coming from. And Mr. Seaton, we're getting, we're getting, we got a, we still got quite a few people that are on the line. That's got some questions. I know we're getting close to that. We're getting close to that one hour mark. I don't want to disrespect your time. How, how are you looking on time? Or you can stick around a little. Oh, while I'm okay. I, I can stay for a while. Let's let's get some, let's get some more in if they've hung with us. All right, time. all right. Good thing. But we're going to go to Melissa. Melissa is calling in. She has a question. Let's see if we can pull <laughs> Melissa up. Melissa, you're on live with Rico Hank. Hey, how you doing, Melissa? Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm sort of in trouble a little bit. I don't know. Uh, There's this broker Uh that does a lot. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. You're coming in. I'm going through the tunnel. I'm going through the tunnel. Anyway, um... The broker has a contract, I guess, to ship in Michigan, and I had taken two of those pipes. One of them 
as I was going to this, like, um, because the, the, the project is on the end of this residential street, and I was going down that street, well, I could have taken another route, but I didn't. And one of the branches kind of scraped the top of the, the pipe, and it, and it had um, a little flash in it. Now, these people say that this is um, major kind of, you know, damage, and they're going to put the pipe up. They received the pipes, and they put them aside, and um, they had... Today, the broker called me and said that the insurance claim has to be opened. They're not filing the insurance claim. They're just going to open up an insurance claim in case that they need to file because they have other people also with the damaged pipes, and they're going to process all this at the end of something like that. Now, you know, this is where it stands, and I'm a little bit worried what's going to happen. How are they going to know it's my pipe and how much damage is to that one pipe and how are they going to all sort that out? Uh, well, yeah, I can see where you got a real problem. Did you take pictures of the pipe before you left it? I did. I did, and okay. I, I called the broker right away, and I, you know, sent him the picture, and I sent the picture to the insurance company, too. Does the, does the broker does the broker have any of your money? Uh, they have, and I think what they're saying is they're going to process my, they're going to open up the claim, but they're going to pay me, you know, so that the actual lien is not going to be against me, I guess, because now they have insurance company that they can well, deal yeah, with. Yeah, look, I mean, that, all that's good because uh, very frequently most uh, uh, brokers would offset the, the potential claim against your freight charges and say, well, we got nine months to file the claim. We're going to at least hold your money that long. Uh, the fact oh, that wow. they're going to yeah. pay you the money is 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 good. They have nine months to file the claim. Uh, oh, if you okay. have in if you have insurance, it sounds like it, the insurance probably won't have any exclusion that wouldn't cover this because this is an actual damage to the pipe. Uh, mm -hmm. if, you, if you provisionally turn the claim over or offered a notice of a claim to your insurance company, then uh, hopefully at the end of the day, your insurance company will adjust the claim. The most you'll be out is your deductible. Deductible, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, you may have a $500 deductible, and that may be what you're out. Uh, you know, it... it it, it, you're in the best of all worlds in that the nature of the claim is one that usually your cargo insurance company will cover, uh, and they, they've they been notified about it early, so they've got their claims processing to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I would assume that is this concrete pipe or metal pipe? No, oh, it's a fiberglass, and I don't see why they can't fix it. <laughs> Well, I don't you know. know. I don't. I don't know. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't either. know about the enough. pressure test and the, and the extent of the damage and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I do know. I do know that uh, if I were your insurance company, I would. Uh, I would want to have the the pipe sorted and inspected, and not wait until the end of the end of the time to figure out that. Uh, oh well, they just made the decision. Yeah. The pipe wasn't worthwhile. 
but all of that is for your insurance company to do. As long okay. as you've taken, as long as you've taken, uh, taken the pictures and notified your insurance company, you've, you've done basically all, all that you can do under the circumstances. Okay, so, so they're going to okay. follow through. Okay, thank you. That. Yeah, I hope well. so. Now, not all insurance companies are equal, and I'm not going to ask you on an open mic who your insurance company is, but. Uh, you know, uh, that's what you buy insurance for. And it's, and it's not, uh, uh, you know, there was physical damage and you did, uh, you, you, you did hit an under, uh, you know, low hanging branch. So there's not a coverage issue. So I think you're, mm-hmm. I think you're okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> sure. All right. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Melissa. And we have we got a couple more calls, but we got a question that came in from um, we got a question from Facebook here. A uh, question that says um, wants to know about the provision in the CFR for terminating a contractor's lease that they have 14 days to return any tra- any company trailers. We give contractors seven days to get out and we'll work with people on getting trailers back, but we have a fleet that we. Uh, terminated and is claiming that they have 14 days and they will charge the company is wanting to charge a hundred dollars per day for loss of revenue plus lease rate and don't want to look stupid in front of the FMCSA if they say something different. Well, uh, for whoever's on Facebook, the regulations are set forth at 49 CFR 376. That's 49 CFRs, 376. Uh, anybody can can Google it. Uh, if they do have my book, I go into uh, a line-by-line explanation of what is in the truth in leasing regulations. The only time limit specified by the government in terms of uh, for doing anything is that the owner-operator must be paid within 15 days of submission of his paperwork, and that upon termination of the lease, the owner-operator must have a final accounting, including an escrow accounting, within 45 days. Otherwise, to the owner-operator lease is specified upon termination when uh, the... uh, uh, the equipment, the trailers must be returned uh, to provide <coughs> when the decals must be removed. Uh, all of that is governed by what is in the signed written agreement. So, uh, you know, you're not going to look foolish before the FMCSA uh, on anything other than the 15 days to ordinarily be paid and the 45 days on settlement. Uh, I have seen what I consider to be egregious leases that say that, uh, you know, if if this is terminated, uh, we've got the right to come get the trailer. Uh, you've got to bring the trailer back to the home base uh, on your own steam. you got to get it here in five days and writs of replevant and all kinds of things uh, in the lease that... Uh, are really pretty egregious. Uh, there may be some some remedy uh, on the independent contractor lease, 
because it's to be construed to be very favorable to the independent contractor and deductions and and uh, uh, those kinds of things are supposed to be really specified uh, in, in detail. So whoever's sending this in may have some pretty good recourse if they're an independent contractor based upon how the language is worded. But just because it's... Uh, it's stout language if it's clear uh, in terms of turning in trailers and things like that. It may still be enforceable under the truth and leasing regulations. Okay, yeah, this was from an actual, this is from a carrier. This is a situation that he's going through with someone that was leased onto him. Um, but but I look like you kind of you helped us out, kind of clear that up for us. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. We got Richard calling in. Uh, Richard has a question about uh, driver pay. Richard, okay, uh, you're on live with the Yes, I am. Thank you. <clears throat> I keep hearing all kinds of things on per diem. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, not per diem. But the fuel surcharge, I get paid percentage of load, company driver. And they, some people say their driver has no per diem, right to per diem. Others say they are. And I'm just trying to clarify it and figure out what's going on. Okay, well, now, you know, you've, you've, you've mixed two issues. Uh, if, you're paid, if you're paid on percentage, uh, you can be paid on percentage and still, I think, be given a per diem allowance. As I understand it, a per diem allowance is, is really a, 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 a tax issue. Uh, and it is a payment that can be made to an owner-operator that, uh, I don't know if it's $37 a night or whatever, that the owner-operator doesn't have to declare as income. And uh, from what I understand about per diem, uh, it's recognition by the IRS that uh, you can write off as an expense a certain amount of, uh, uh, every night that you're away from home as a business expense. And that's what I, where I think the per diem comes in. And how, how it's worked between the carrier uh, denominating it and you reporting it, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I do think that uh, your accountant should know what per diem is. And when you go to fill out your taxes, uh, to the extent that you can write off well, it's 37 or $47 a night out of your settlements as uh, money you don't have to pay taxes on. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a real benefit to you. So Right, I my, understand that. But on yeah. the fuel surcharge, because as I said, I'm a company driver, and the carrier I'm working for now says I'm not entitled to fuel surcharge. Well, and why, why would that. you be? You didn't purchase the fuel. Okay. Fair enough. That was the main thing, because I've had truck driving lawyers undertake you have to and you don't, and I just don't like to act on anything unless I know for well, sure I have it. Well, you know, I have, I have heard that uh, there, there, there are some lawyers running around the country trying to get class actions against motor carriers to say that the owner-operator should get 
you fade on percentage, okay? Now, you say you're a company right. driver. But right. that the owner-operator is paid on a percentage. He's supposed to get 70% of gross revenue. Well, they say uh, it's unfair then for the company not to pay him 70% of, uh, uh, of a damage claim or 70% of a, uh, 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 of a, uh, an expense that the company absorbed. So, in other words, let's say if a company... Uh, uh, build a carrier uh, or build its shipper uh, for um, extra insurance or something like that that was a pass-through that uh, wasn't part of uh, uh, any work or any uh, expense incurred by the owner-operator, that the owner-operator should get 70% of that too. And I think that's really pretty crazy. It seems to me as though the way to interpret it is that if the owner-operator is going to be paid 70% of the revenue, that should be 70% of the line haul revenue and 70% of, the, of any, uh, of any liability charge incurred where the owner-operator uh, did something. But, you know, if there is right. a, uh, a, a, an extra charge for a hydraulic blower on an automatic tank, and that's passed through. I'm not sure I think the owner-operator should get that if it's a washout charge. So, uh, you know, there is a problem with the fuel surcharge because increasingly, unless you say as a part of gross revenue that the owner-operator will be paid, you know, uh, one cent for every five cent over, and then you back that out of uh, the, the gross revenue, it gets really hard to figure out well, carrier A's got a fuel, or shipper A's got a fuel surcharge, but shipper B doesn't. You know how how do you how do you get apples and oranges all together? Uh, that is true. It, you know you get a hundred percent of the fuel surcharge, if any. Otherwise, you get seventy percent, and it just depends on how the shipper negotiated the contract. It, it seems like it's all over the lot, and uh, you know I I, I think they're. Uh, independent contractor agreements need to be clearer in terms of, you know, how to compensate the guy for for the fuel. Uh, well, no, so I agree that it's very clouded issue on a lot of items in the carrier business and truckload business. To me, to me, you know, it 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 should be read really pretty. Pretty clear. If the if the independent contractor, uh, if it's a reimbursable, uh, you know, if you're uh, if if you've got to uh, uh, if there is fuel and it's being charged and you bought the fuel, it ought to come through at a hundred percent. If you're responsible, if it's per diem, and the thing says you get seventy percent of the per diem, you certainly ought to get it because you're the one that had to sit there and wait. Uh, if it's uh, uh, if it's some uh, uh, expense that uh, you didn't incur, uh, like for a special trailer, uh, uh, you know, or size and weight permit that got passed got passed through at cost, why should the independent contractor get seventy percent of a cost item that the carrier incurred? That doesn't seem to make any sense to me. No, that doesn't. 
No, there's just a lot. You have carriers that are trying to shave. Everybody's trying to make an extra penny and nickel and stretch it as far as they can, and they take it from where you they can, and you got to be aware of the law and what you have available to you and what recourse to you. But if you don't yeah, know, you can't yeah, take care of yourself. The other important thing for people to remember under the truth and leasing regulations is that the carrier can't, you know, if he's going to give you a, a discount and he's getting a discount, he's probably got to pass along the same discount. You know, if he paid if he paid a a dollar fifty uh, for fuel because he got a discount, then you know you ought to be charged a dollar fifty for the fuel. Or the contract should say very clearly that you're getting a, a different compensation formula. Uh, there, right. There's a old case against Landstar where uh, it was alleged that uh, uh, you know I think the independent contractor was buying insurance through Landstar but he was paying more for it than Landstar was paying the underwriter. And, you know, the, the court said, well, that, that that's not fair. All right, created a, I created, they created, kind of created the extra profits in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be a different thing. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not hitting on Landstar. It's an old case. It'd be a different thing if a... Uh, uh, if a carrier said, look, you can buy insurance through us, but we're going to charge an administrative charge of $50 a month. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to, we're going to bill you, we're going to bill you what it costs us plus $50 per month. Then at least you know that they weren't creating a separate profit center. And you could go right. buy your insurance somewhere else, not pay that 50 bucks. Right. Okay, well, Richard, we appreciate your phone call. We're going to move on. We got looks like we got about two more questions here, Hank, and we can get ready to kind of wrap this thing up tonight. Um, just want to remind everybody once again, uh, we can give you your website again, www.transportationlaw.net. Uh, you can find uh, information, uh, all kind of transportation law information there at that website. Of course, we have the Racing Lanes Facebook group. Uh, you can go and like us on Facebook. Of course, you can look for me on Facebook, Rico Muhammad. Uh, you know, you can be social with us. Kind of get your questions ahead of time posted on those sites. And let's see here. We're going to go back to the phone lines. Caller calling in from area code 618. The caller calling in from area code 618. You're on live with Rico and Hank. I can help. Hello, caller. Oh. Hey Rico, I'm not I'm not uh, in the queue. Give me a getting uh, put into it. Okay, all right. Well, all right. Well, appreciate all right. it. We I seen you had a little had a edge up on here. We'll put you back on hold. All right. Well, let's go to Daryl. Daryl has a question here. Uh, let's bring Daryl on board. All right, Daryl. Yeah, Rico. Live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? How you doing, yes, Rico? Sir, Darryl, I, you I had a live. question. Yes, Rico. You just just a moment ago. You had uh, well about three or four callers back. Mentioned about a book when the guy talked about uh, growing the business. Who's that book? Michael Gerber. Michael Gerber is called The E-Myth Revisited. Uh, was on the New York Times bestseller list for quite some time. Uh, it's kind of been called the Bible of small businesses. One of the, one of, one of the best small business books. Uh, what Michael Gerber does is, in, in, you know, kind of like a Cliff Notes version uh, here on the air real quickly. Michael Gerber talks about E-Myth. E-Myth stands for entrepreneurial myth. And what, what Michael Gerber talks about in the book is that a lot of people make the mistake of they think that they're being entrepreneurs and they actually are buying themselves a job. 
you you want to spend more time. Basically, the premise of the book is you have to do all the things of the the entrepreneur is actually running a business. So you got to spend more time working on your business. You know, developing your business, whether that means right. hiring employees, uh, marketing. All of the things that comes along with being the entrepreneur, the leader of the business, you know, he kind of goes in depth and kind of gives you a roadmap and guides you along the way on how you can adjust and make changes so that you're not the person, uh, you're not the tactician actually in the job there doing the day-to-day operations. It's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Go check it out if you, if you get a chance. It's, it's, uh, they have it available on audiobook on audible.com, uh, one of the most excellent reads that you would ever read as far as small business concerns uh, that I've ever come across. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Was that, that answer your question? That answered completely. Cool beans. Well, we appreciate it. We got a couple more calls. Man, we're going to get, we're going to get ready to start to land this puck. We're going to try to bring a couple of these guys on and get, and get out of here, but we, we got about, uh, we're going to let Mr. Seaton go and we're going to land this thing. We got about 10 more minutes left here in the call. So let's jump over to caller calling in from the 806 area code. Caller calling in from the 806 area code. You're on live with Rico and Hank. Yes, Rico, Hank. Um, I have a question. The website is transportationlaw.net. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, Do you have – I have a gentleman that's um, leasing on to me, and I am a lifetime member with OIDA, so I got their – leasing agreement, but there's quite a few things missing in that. Do you have a general leasing agreement that we could buy from you that would cover um, everything that we need? Uh, Yes, I do. Uh, One of the things that I've, I've got to say is because state laws are involved with workman's comp and those kinds of things, uh, you know, I've got kind of a standard owner-operator agreement that takes care of the 20-part federal test, but I need to know to help you, uh, uh, you know, what state you're in and uh, be sure that it's modified so that you meet the, the workman's comp criteria there. There are some states, for example, that say that, you know, a motor carrier can't lease, uh, uh, do a lease purchase deal with an owner-operator and still avoid uh, workman's comp. So it's not one size fits all. Uh, you can contact me through transportationlaw.net and, you know, I'll be happy to, at a reasonable uh, price, help you with the, with the contract. Uh, that's one of the things we do. Okay? That would be great. The other question okay. I have is, after a claim, um, we hold a load of windows for a company in May, and we hold four loads. First three loads arrive just fine. The fourth load, the gentleman that supervised the loading of the other three was not there, and there was a bunch of damage. That was in May. Uh, since then, in November, I switched insurance companies, and I got a phone call last week uh, from my old insurance company saying that there's been a freight claim for these windows made. Is there a time period for the company that we hold the windows for to file a claim, or can that just happen six, eight months, two years down the road? Well, the statute provides that a shipper has 
no less than nine months to file a claim. And actually, the nine-month rule is enforced as a matter of contract or as part of the uniform bill of lading. If you look at your bill of lading, if one was issued, it probably has in the fine print that the claim must be filed within nine months. So, yeah, you know, we, if, we just... We just hand-wrote our own bill of ladings on that, and it was just a gentleman's agreement that, you know, if there was any damage to the windows, they were going to be responsible for that. And uh, obviously that's where I screwed up. I shouldn't have trusted them, I guess. Yeah, in the, in the book that Rico was talking about, uh, you know, for a carrier to publish service terms and conditions, they publish in the service terms and conditions, that the uniform bill of lading will apply and its nine-month rule is there. Uh, but uh, the, the general principles of cargo claims are that unless it's shipper load and count... Uh, Which it was. Uh, if it was shipper load and count and you weren't there to watch the loading, then uh, you have probably got a pretty fair defense that, uh, you know, it was the way it was stacked and packed. It caused the loss, but in theory, the, na the words of SLC or words of similar import should have been put on the bill of lading. Uh, you know that that shipper loading count usually applies when you've got a spotted trailer and it's loaded and sealed when you get there. This That's what we did. We 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 spotted the trailer, they would take the day, they would load it, and the windows that were broke were towards the center of the trailer, was my understanding. So, you know, we put the paperwork in the back door, put a padlock on it, and down the road we went. So we wouldn't have been able to see it anyway, you know. Well, your insurance company, is your insurance company providing you with the defense? Uh, your old insurance company? When they called me, she asked me for my side of the story, and then she's supposed to get back to me. That's all I know. Yeah, well, you know, the, what's going to happen usually is the constantly will get around to filing the claim within nine months, and then the argument will be over whether or not it was actually shipper load of encounter, whether it was the fault of the consignor, or whether or not you... Uh, uh, could have uh, uh, observed the loading and are responsible. Okay. And it sounds like you sounds like you know getting an affidavit from the driver and uh, documenting what happened is, uh, is you know it's going to be a key to resolving it. Yeah, well, I was actually there when uh, I, mean, I helped the guy pull the trailer out of the dock and we closed up the doors and everything. And so uh, you know I can do that myself. All right. Well, it sounds like you... The other thing is, when you don't have a chance to observe the loading and those kinds of things, when you sign the bill, uh, put down your name, the name of the carrier, and the word SLC. Okay. Because that stands right. shipper loading count, and there is a statute that says that when the word shipper loading count or words of similar import are on a bill of lading, a carrier is not responsible... For, for the count or for uh, upset to the trailer uh, or for damage to the goods that result from the loading. Perfect. Now, one other quick thing, if you've got a minute. Um, 
When I talked to the gentleman from OIDA, he mentioned the workers' comp the owner-operator. So I got a hold of my insurance company in Washington, and they have recommended a insurance policy. It costs about $160 a month, but it gives a million dollars worth of protection if the guy falls off the truck. Otherwise, my insurance company said, it was just a five or ten thousand dollars pit that would um, go to war. Well, wait, wait a minute. Let me let me ask you a question. You said Washington. You talking about Washington State? State, correct. Yes. Okay, Washington State is not a very happy place for owner for the independent contractor model. Uh, you okay. know, I told you when we started this that. Uh, uh, workman's comp varied by state. Uh, I would think that uh, it may be very tough to uh, avoid workman's comp in Washington State. I think what the, uh, your agent is talking about is what's called occupational accident insurance. Yeah. And in many states, uh, what you do is you require the independent contractor to buy Hawk Act. Right. The reason That's what we is were the do. premiums. The premiums are a whole lot less than they are for workman's comp. And uh, if he has OCK act and he's injured on the job, you, there's really not a whole lot of incentive for him to come sue the motor carrier. The reason the right. OCK is premiums are less than the workman's comp is because independent contractors, uh, 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 if they stump the toe, they don't take two weeks off. Uh, right, you know, exactly. they, they have less claims. They're more entrepreneurial in spirit. So, uh, purchasing Ock Act is a, is a is an important defensive mechanism to a workman's comp claim. Now, should I and, also do that for myself, being the owner of the company? I ca I don't pay workers' comp. They don't accept it from me anyway. So I was looking at acquiring the same insurance. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, you know, if you're exempt, if you're exempt uh, under the statute, then what you're doing is you're just uh, making a risk analysis. Uh, right. You know, is it, uh, is it worth it to you uh, to uh, have what amounts to a disability policy? Uh, because, right, I mean, yeah. you know, I assume you're going to have health care to take care oh, of yeah. your your injuries, but, you know, it may be a cheap form of, of disability insurance and something you want to look at. And whether we, I mean, we were, we're going to get these policies um, in the driver's name, but like the insurance and everything, we as a company actually make the payments and then we deduct that from our owner-operators. Is that yeah, in legal. the lease, and I'm sure the OIDA lease probably goes into this, you can't require the independent contractor to have to buy Hawk Act through you. <laughs> you, <laughs> you can give him the choice. He either prevents, gives you a, a certificate showing that he's bought Hawk Act, or he can buy it through you, but at that point you've got to give him uh, the deck page and proof that he's actually got it, and you need to, I think you were probably on the line when we talked earlier, be sure that he's paying the actual premium for it. Right. Okay. And, of course, well, you, know, you, goose, you, goose up, you goose up his revenue so that, you know, it's uh, 
it, you know, it's not some, uh, uh, you know, every everybody, every driver needs it, but, uh, you know, it's a, uh, ultimately, uh, uh, it's cheaper coverage for everybody. All right. So, All right. That thank you, that, and we're going to... We're, Thank you, and we're going to give Daryl. Daryl going to get the last word tonight. You're going to be the last caller. We're going to get through. Daryl, you're on live with uh, with uh, Rico and Hank. Rico, you just answer mine. Oh, okay, we got to you. Okay, we we had a caller that was in there. I was trying to get to, uh, but that I guess that wraps it up. So, okay, well, Hank, we knocked out all of the calls tonight. We had a couple more, but we don't want. Uh, overburden you too much more, but do you want to give out any uh, closing remarks, no, anything you want no, to No, I think, I think the only thing I would say is uh, for anybody still on the line, do you believe that the FMCSA today has come out with an app for every shipper, broker, and insurance company's phone that will let them check every carrier's SMS scores at the drop of a hat? They are still insisting that shippers, brokers, and carriers have an obligation to uh, call the herd based on SMS methodology, even though everybody knows that it's rigged to fail and doesn't actually predict safety. So uh, I guess uh, my comment for the night is expect in the last uh, uh, or in the next year, to see uh, a very active uh, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration before we gear up for the 2016 elections, making it much more difficult for small businesses. We just got through making comments and advance notice of proposed rulemaking in which they want to increase the amount of insurance that carriers would have to have from $1 million to as much as nine to ten million dollars the cost of that would be prohibitive and would uh, make our our friend who's just going out on his own impossible to to get insurance and get into the business uh i think we're really at a turning point in which uh it, it's uh if 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 something if something doesn't happen it's going to be uh really tough for uh, uh uh, for people to get into trucking, and and uh, I'd like to read that entrepreneurs that book on entrepreneurship. I think uh, uh, trucking has uh, uh, has created a great living for a for a lot of uh, uh, folks that didn't have to go to Harvard Business School to uh, uh, run their own run their own businesses, and I just think all of that's in peril. I mean, Lord knows we don't have to worry just about ICs and what's going on abroad, but what's going on here is crazy enough. So with those hopeful words, I'll I'll sign off uh, 30 minutes late. <laughs> yes, sir, Mr. Seaton. We appreciate all your time once again. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Hank, that was Hank Seaton that was joined us tonight. He's in once again. Uh, please go and purchase his book. He's going to be coming out with a new book. We forgot to ask him about it tonight, but he's going to be coming out with another book here shortly that he's uh he's been working on. But go to his website, www.transportationlaw.net. Wealth of information on there. You can always catch Hank here. Uh, he usually joins us on the third Wednesday of every month. Um, 
we have him on. He's here to answer your questions. And, we, and just like you said earlier, he, he doesn't hold any punches back. He gets straight to it, and um, and you get a great opportunity to ask someone that's an actual an attorney to get your questions answered, and not just lunch counter banner. We are already over time. Um, we're going to wrap up tonight. We want to thank everyone that helped make this program possible. We want to thank my wife, Lasagna, my uh, my lovely daughter, Fatina, for helping screen calls. Uh, thank Kevin and Lisa Rutherford and the entire Let's Truck team. This is Rico Muhammad signing off live from Atlanta, Georgia, wishing you all a uh, good night and be safe out there. God bless you. Thank you and good night. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.